welcome to this OLTV podcast series titled The History of the Byzantine Liturgy by Archimandrite Robert Taft, S.J., Distinguished Professor Emeritus of the Pontifical Oriental Institute. This fourth episode of six is on the topic of liturgy and the medieval East. like to talk to you about a topic that's often neglected. It's a topic that was recommended to me some years ago by my dear departed friend, Father John Mayendorf, one of the greats of Orthodox theology in our modern times. We often talk about liturgy in the early period. We talk about liturgy today. The Middle Ages, in many ways, get neglected. So it's an interesting topic and one that may contain some surprises for us. Liturgy and the piety it nourishes are part of a larger historical cultural milieu. In the medieval East, this milieu was not especially favorable to Christian life. The divisions caused by the 5th and 6th century Christological controversies had hardened and Arab, Mongol, and Turkish conquests had reduced these divided communities to minority status in a largely Muslim world. Go on with the splendors of the urban, stational, and basilical rites of late antiquity. Liturgical life became more private, restricted to family, monastery, and church. Within the ever-shrinking remnant of the Byzantine Empire, analogous changes can be observed. The monumental architecture of the Justinianic period was succeeded by middle and late Byzantine churches, often miniature by comparison. The monastic victory over iconoclasm, iconoclasm lasted from 726 to 843, had contributed to the demoralization of the secular clergy. Monasteries became richer, more autonomous, and multiply especially in the cities. And in the later centuries of Byzantium, far more monastic than secular churches were built. The Fourth Crusade and consequent Latin rule from 1204 to 1261 had deep effects on the liturgical life of Constantinople. The secular clergy, unable to restore the complex rite of the great church, acquiesced in the monasticization of the offices. Still, during the Paleologan Restoration from 1259 to 1453, the church and monasteries remained a powerful force in the life of the people. Most of the art of this later period is monastic and ecclesiastical, and the numerous monks were a familiar and revered part of everyday life. Furthermore, this was a period of monastic renewal, especially on Mount Athos, where the hesychist flowering stimulated a remarkable spiritual renaissance that was to spread throughout the Orthodox world. To this revival belongs St. Nicholas Gavasilas, lay humanist writing around 1350, whose brilliant treatises, combining the best in humanism and hesychist spirituality, made him the classic exponent of Byzantine liturgical theology during the hesychist revival. What shape did the liturgy have in this period? 
By the late Middle Ages, the Eastern Eucharistic liturgies had achieved more or less their definitive external shape. This had come about by filling in the basic common outline of the Eucharist at what I call the three soft points of the service. First, before the readings, second, between the word service and the anaphora, and third, at the communion and dismissal that follow this prayer. In the primitive liturgy, these were the three points of action without words, the entrance into church, then the kiss of peace and transfer of gifts before the anaphora, and then following the Eucharistic prayer, the fraction, communion, and dismissal rites. What could be more natural than to develop the ceremonial of these actions, cover them with chants, and add to them suitable prayers? One of the most common phenomena in medieval liturgical development is the steadfast refusal to let a gesture speak for itself. The socio-political and economic situation of the period also entailed changes of scale. The compression of church life to within the walls of ever smaller churches is accompanied by a shift toward greater symbolization. Rites once of practical import lose their original purpose and perdure in reduced form, acquiring in the process symbolic interpretations often far removed from their roots. The classic example is the intrite procession at the beginning of the Eucharistic liturgy. Originally, this was a solemn entrance into the church with strong longitudinal lines corresponding to the longitudinal axis of the early basilicas. Later, much smaller, centrally planned Byzantine churches reflect a change in ritual. The intrite becomes an epiphany of Christ symbolized in the Gospel book, a truncated remnant of the original solemn procession in which the celebrant bears the Gospel out from the altar to the nave, then circles back to the altar again. The end result was a liturgy less imperial and more intimate. No longer do its long public stational processions encompass the whole city within its liturgical space. Its ritual, still imposing, is confined within the church building, and processions are reduced to a series of appearances of the sacred ministers from behind the sanctuary barrier. The most important of these appearances are the two solemn introits. The first introit is a procession with the gospel, said to symbolize Christ's coming to us in the Word. The other entrance, at the beginning of the Eucharistic part of the service, is a procession to the altar for the anaphora, and usually includes the solemn transfer of the gifts of bread and wine prepared before the beginning of the liturgy. It is said to show Christ being led to his sacrifice and to prefigure his coming to us in the sacrament of his body and blood. These foreshadowings are fulfilled in two later appearances, the procession of the deacon with the gospel lectionary to the ambo for the reading and the procession of the celebrant to distribute communion and the consecrated gifts. This move towards smaller scale also entailed a certain privatization of the liturgy. Not only are the once great public processions reduced to ritual turns within the interior of tiny chapels, even within the church the ritual action withdraws into the ever more completely enclosed sanctuary as Templon develops into iconostasis. The elevated synthronon, where the clergy sat, disappears from the apse. No longer must the celebrant at his throne be visible to all, 
and the great ambo in the center of the nave is displaced, reduced, even removed, as preaching and proclamation of the word become a ritualized formality, usually the reading of a ready text from some homiliary or book of homilies. The proliferation of private oratories with their clergy are further signs of the shift away from monumental public services to the more domestic and monastic. But liturgies have both an inner and an outer history that interact in dialectical tension, reciprocally molding and informing each other. This is especially true in the East, where the spiritual understanding of ritual has contributed vitally to the development of its symbolic form. Later liturgical changes, though perhaps structurally insignificant, are not necessarily without import for the history of liturgical spirituality. Changes in the Byzantine Eucharist during the Middle and Late Byzantine periods, the introduction of particles for the living and dead at the prothesis or preparation of the gifts before the liturgy, the development of the great entrance ritual and its symbolism, the multiplication of burial motif troparia at the deposition of the gifts, and the elaboration of the Orate Fratres text, pre-communion prayers and final rites, are indicative not only of the inevitable ritual elaboration of all medieval liturgies, but also of developments in piety. The offerings for the living and dead that the people brought to the liturgy were a major expression of their part in the liturgical action. And the interpretation of the liturgy as symbolizing the earthly economy of Jesus, beginning at the prothesis with the emptying or kenosis of his incarnation, birth, and hidden life, and proceeding through the preaching of his public ministry, his appearance in word during the possession with the gospel or little entrance, and in the readings of the liturgy of the word, reached its high point in the great entrance when the people prostrated themselves before the appearance of the Lord, being led to his sacrifice, death, burial, and resurrection in the communion of the sanctified gifts. That all this had a profound effect on popular piety can be seen in the common people's attitude of profound reverence at these parts of the liturgy. Theological interpretation of this spirituality was formulated in liturgical commentaries and communicated to the masses through the ritual celebration itself, as well as in the liturgical disposition and decoration of the church building, which provided not only the physical setting of the rite, but was also one of its essential symbolic components. Both church decoration and ritual combined to create a unitary symbolic ambience designed to provide an entrance into the mystery of salvation in Christ. Eucharist was more than a celebration of Christian table fellowship, more even than a sharing in the Lord's word and supper. It was theophany, a place of encounter with the very mystery of God, Active participation in the liturgy meant more than just taking part in the processions and chants, more than being attentive to the lessons in homily, more than just receiving communion. It also implied an ascent through faith from historia to theoria, that is to say from the visible concrete symbols and ritual forms to the contemplation of the transcendent reality they contain. Central to such a view is the conviction that the visible world is the image and manifestation of the invisible, that symbol, though distinct from its antitype, participates in and communicates its reality.
The mystery of God revealed in Jesus was the prime analogate of this, a visible sign embodying a divine reality which it both reveals and veils. This is the basis of spiritual exegesis, what is called mystagogy and of iconography. What is portrayed is the historia, that is to say the literal, the visible, which veils a gnosis perceived only by one who contemplates it with eyes illumined by faith. By a process of anagogy, one rises from letter to spirit, from the visible rites and icons to the contemplation of the one mystery that is God. This Alexandrian method of liturgical interpretation, in which the contemplation of liturgical rites leads the soul to the spiritual, mystical realities of the invisible world, reached organic systematization at the end of the 5th century in the ecclesiastical hierarchy of Pseudo-Dionysius, who wrote, The sensible rites are the image of intelligible realities. They lead there and show the way to them. But this system represents only one strain of the latest synthesis. The other, Antiochian strain, more attentive to the concrete, to what the Greeks call the historia, derives from the 4th century baptismal catechesis of Theodore of Mopsuestia, with its strong emphasis on the Eucharistic ritual as a representation of Christ's self-oblation in his passion and death. For Theodore, the liturgy is at once an image and prefiguration of the heavenly and eschatological realities and a memorial representation of the historical economy of Christ, both an icon of the heavenly liturgy and also a dramatic representation of the paschal mystery of Christ itself. This new interpretation of the liturgical historia as a dramatic reenactment of the earthly economy of Jesus crucial for almost all later Eastern liturgical interpretation, was introduced to Byzantine mystagogy by Constantinopolitan patriarch St. Germanus I around 730 and achieved its classical liturgical expression around 1350 in St. Nicholas Kavasilas' commentary on the Divine Liturgy, that is to say on the Eucharist, and his treatise on the other sacraments entitled The Life in Christ. Kavasilas, paraphrasing the epiclesis of the Chrysostom anaphora, makes it clear from the outset that the essence of the divine liturgy is the Eucharistic consecration, ordered toward the sanctification of the faithful, he says, who through these mysteries receive the remission of their sins and the inheritance of the heavenly kingdom. All else, he says, the antiphons, lessons, prayers, chants, is meant to dispose us for this central sacramental communion. They turn us towards God and make us fit for the reception and preservation of the holy mysteries, which is the aim of the liturgy, he tells us. But there is another level of liturgical signification, he adds, another way in which these forms sanctify us. He says it consists in this, that in them Christ and the deeds he accomplished and the sufferings he endured for our sakes are represented. Indeed, it is the whole scheme of the work of redemption which is signified in the psalms and readings, as in all the actions of the priest throughout the liturgy. The first ceremonies of the service represent the beginnings of this work, the next the sequel, and the last its results. Thus those who are present at these ceremonies have before their eyes all these divine things, 
the consecration of the elements commemorates the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Savior. The ceremonies which precede the act of sacrifice symbolize the events which occurred before the death of Christ, his coming on earth, his first appearance, and his perfect manifestation. Those which follow, the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, the conversion of the nations which they brought about, and their divine society. The whole celebration of the mystery is like a unique portrayal of a single body, which is the work of the Savior. End quote. Even if one maintains that the readings and psalms were introduced in order to dispose us to virtue, he continues, that does not mean that the same ceremonies cannot at once urge us to virtue and illustrate the scheme of Christ's redemptive work. Because of the selection which has been made and the order in which the passages are arranged, they have another function. They signify the coming of Christ and his work. Not only the chants and readings, but the very actions themselves have this part to play. Each has its own immediate purpose and usefulness. But at the same time, each symbolizes some part of the works of Christ, his deeds or his sufferings. For example, we have the bringing of the gospel to the altar, then the bringing of the offerings. Each is done for a purpose, the one that the gospel may be read, the other that the sacrifice may be performed. Besides this, however, one represents the appearance and the other the manifestation of the Savior, the first obscure and imperfect at the beginning of his life, the perfect and supreme manifestation later. But this representational aspect of the ritual is not an empty show. The ceremonies are meant to be a concrete object of popular contemplation in order to stimulate a personal response of faith. Their purpose is to set before us the divine plan, that by looking upon it our souls may be sanctified, and thus we may be made fit to receive these sacred gifts. Just as the work of redemption when it was first achieved restored the world, so now, when it is ever before our eyes, it makes the souls of those who behold it better and more divine. I say more, it would not even have been of any use if it had not been an object of contemplation and of faith. It could not have fulfilled its task and saved mankind if even after it had been performed, it had remained unknown to those whom it should have saved. But when it was preached, it created in those men of graceless soul who previously knew it not, a veneration for Christ, and a faith and love which did not exist before. Today, contemplated with ardor by those who already have faith, it preserves, renews, and increases what already exists. It makes the believers stronger in faith and more generous in devotion and love. So for Kavasilas, the operation of this liturgical symbolism does not depend on some abstruse symbol system. On the contrary, nothing could be more concretely realistic. He continues, It was necessary not only that we should think about, but also that to some extent we should see the utter poverty of him who possesses all, the coming on earth of him who dwells everywhere, the shame of the most blessed God, the sufferings of the impassable, that we, should th that we should see how much he was hated and how much he loved, how he, the Most High, humbled himself, what torments he endured, what he accomplished in order to prepare for us this holy table. 
Thus, in beholding the unutterable freshness of the work of salvation, amazed by the abundance of God's mercy, we are brought to venerate him who had such compassion for us, who saved us at so great a price, to entrust our souls to him, to dedicate our lives to him, to enkindle in our hearts the flame of his love. Thus prepared, we can enter into contact with the fire of the solemn mysteries with confidence and trust. End of quotation. This is no intellectualist spirituality, no lofty Gnosticism of a spiritual elite, but a profoundly imaginative and popular piety. In his book, The Life of Christ, a masterpiece of sacramental spirituality for any age, Kavasila supplies this same method across the entire horizon of Christian life. To be a Christian is to live in Christ, to be united to him, and the sacramental mysteries are the means of initiation into this life and its nourishment and growth. Indeed, the mysteries are a metaphor in action, an analogy of life. He tells us what makes the bishop an exemplar of the altar is not only that he himself is a craftsman of the symbolic rites of the consecration of the altar, but that human nature alone of things visible is truly capable of being a temple of God and an altar, since it presents the image and type of that which is fashioned by men's hands. The same theology is at the basis of Byzantine icon worship, and both of its dimensions, church and liturgy as a mirror of the mysteries of salvation, church and liturgy as cosmic and eschatological images of the heavenly world and its worship, emerge already at the end of the early Byzantine period in the theology of the church building itself. Germanus synthesizes this twofold perspective as follows. The church is heaven on earth, where the God of heaven dwells and moves. It images forth the crucifixion and burial and resurrection of Christ. It is glorified above the tabernacle of the testimony of Moses, with its expiatory and holy of holies, prefigured in the patriarchs, founded on the apostles, adorned in hierarchs, perfected in the martyrs. The holy altar stands for the place where Christ was laid in the grave, on which the true and heavenly bread, the mystical and bloodless sacrifice lies, his flesh and blood offered to the faithful as the food of eternal life. It is also the throne of God on which the incarnate God reposes, and like the table at which he was in the midst of his disciples at his mystical supper, prefigured in the table of the old law where the manna was, which is Christ, come down from heaven. In middle and late Byzantine churches, an iconographic program is gradually elaborated to express this vision of mystery to the ordinary faithful, unreached by the literary productions of Akavasilas. In the cosmic scheme, the church building and the ritual it enfolds are an image of the present age of the church, in which the divine grace is mediated to those in the world, the name of the church, from the divine abode, the sanctuary of the church, and its heavenly worship, which in turn images forth its future consummation when we shall enter that abode in glory. In the economic scheme, the sanctuary and its altar are at once holy of holies, cenacle of the Last Supper, Golgotha, and tomb of the resurrection, which the sacred gifts of the risen Lord, his word and his body and blood, issue forth to illumine the sin-darkened world.
The surfaces of the church interior become so enveloped in imagery that building and icon become one in evoking that vision of the Christian cosmos around which the Byzantine liturgy revolved. From the central dome, the image of the Pantocrat dominates the whole scheme, giving unity to the hierarchical and liturgical themes. The movement of the hierarchical theme is vertical, ascending from the present worshiping community assembled in the nave, up through the ranks of saints, prophets, patriarchs, and apostles, to the Lord in the heavens, attended by the heavenly choirs. The liturgical scheme, extending upward from the sanctuary, is united both artistically and theologically with the hierarchical. In fact, it is only with the liturgical theme that the symbolism of the church comes alive and appears as more than a static embodiment of the cosmos as seen through the eyes of God. A link between the divine and created worlds was forged by Christ in the covenant of, in the covenant of his blood, a covenant renewed in the Eucharistic liturgy and ratified by the Amen of God's people. This dynamic bond is expressed in both the disposition and iconography of the church. The enclosed sanctuary wherein the mysteries of the covenant are renewed is conceived as the link between heaven and earth. Behind and above the altar on the wall of the central sanctuary apse is depicted the communion of the apostles, Christ the high priest, surrounded by the angels, giving the Eucharist to the twelve. Over the altar in the conch is the Mother of God interceding on our behalf. With her is the Christ child, figure of the Incarnation, that made this sacrificial intercession possible. Above this, at the summit of the arch, is the throne of divine judgment, where the sacrificial mediation intercedes before God. From the sanctuary, cycles of liturgical feasts are depicted in lateral bands of frescoes that extend around the walls of the church, binding the historical past into the salvific renewal of the present. Within this setting, the liturgical community commemorated the mystery of its redemption in union with the worship of the heavenly church, offering the mystery of Christ's covenant through the outstretched hands of his mother, all made present in the sacramental surroundings of the iconographic scheme. This liturgy of the heavenly church, usually depicted as an angelic great entrance, symbolic climax of the divine liturgy, made even more unmistakably explicit the symbolism proclaimed in the liturgical chants and texts. As in the Kerubicon, we who mystically represent the cherubim and sing the thrice holy hymn to the life-giving trinity, let us now lay aside all worldly care to receive the King of all escorted unseen by the angelic core. Alleluia. Even the unlettered Christian, chanting these phrases as clouds of incense mingled with the smoking thoribles of the depicted heavenly liturgy, must have grasped something of what St. Simeon of Thessalonica, who died in 1429, last of the classic Byzantine commentators of this era, meant in chapter 131 of his treatise on the Holy Temple. I quote, The church as the house of God is an image of the whole world, for God is everywhere and above everything. The sanctuary is a symbol of the higher and supra-heavenly spheres where the throne of God and his dwelling place are said to be. 
It is this throne that the altar represents. The heavenly hierarchies are found in many places, but here they are accompanied by priests who take their place, that is to say, who represents them. The bishop represents Christ. The church represents this visible world. Outside it are the lower regions and the world of beings that live not according to reason and have no higher life. The sanctuary receives within itself the bishop who represents the God-man Jesus, whose almighty powers he shares. The other sacred ministers represent the apostles and especially the angels and archangels, each according to his order. I mention the apostles with the angels, bishops, and priests because there is only one church above and below since God came down and lived among us, doing that for which he was sent on our behalf. And it is a work which is one, as is our Lord's sacrifice, communion, and contemplation. And it is carried out both above and here below, but with this difference. Above it is done without any veils or symbols, but here it is accomplished through symbols. End of quotation. The Greeks have left a more developed and abundant literary and iconographic legacy expressive of their medieval liturgical piety, but this vision was not unique to the Byzantine tradition. True, West Syrian and Armenian liturgical commentators, more Antiochian in method, confine themselves by and large to an exegesis of the liturgical text with only occasional flights of allegory or expositions of ritual symbolism. And medieval Coptic liturgical writing from Egypt, almost wholly descriptive, rubrical, and canonical treatises, can hardly be called mystagogy. But the East Syrians were direct inheritors of the spiritual legacy of Theodore Mopsvestia, and their tradition of liturgical spirituality can be traced through Nasai, who died in 502, Gabriel and Abraham Khatraya Balipa in the 7th century, Suru George of Avila in the 9th century, to the medieval period we have been discussing, to our period with Yohanan Barzovi and Yohanan of Mosul in the 13th century, our medieval period, Abdishu Babrika of Nisibis, who died in 1318, and Timothy II, Catholicos, from 1318 to 1332. These later authors follow Gabriel Catraya Baralipa in interpreting the liturgy as, and he says, a commemoration of the entire economy of God that was accomplished on earth through Christ, beginning with his birth according to the flesh, and proceeding gradually to his death, resurrection, and ascension. According to Barzokhbi, the liturgy is also a foretaste of our resurrection in the likeness of the resurrection of Christ and the promise of eternal bliss made to all who believe. The church, too, is part of the symbolic unity. The enclosed sanctuary is the future and heavenly world. The nave is this world. The bema in its midst is Jerusalem, site of the proclamation of the word. The solemn processions between sanctuary and bema symbolize the divine commerce between heaven and earth, which the liturgy both represents and effects. Though daily Eucharist never became a widespread custom in Eastern parochial usage, even Hagia Sophia and Constantinople had no provision for daily divine liturgy until Emperor Constantine the Ninth Monomarchus assigned revenues for this purpose in the year 1044. This does not mean that there was a liturgical void on weekdays. In the East, morning praise and evensong were not monastic services, but popular parish devotions. 
The morning and night prayers of ordinary folk, celebrated at dawn and at dusk of every day. These services were not a long, continuous monastic psalmody interspersed with meditative prayers. Rather, they were popular ceremonies of movement and symbol. Vespers, for example, comprised the Lucianarium, or light service, that transformed the old pagan rite of evening lamplighting into a symbol of Christ, the light of the world. This meaning was expressed in the hymn of light that accompanied the Lucianarium. There followed the chant of Psalm 140, the classic Vesperal Psalm, because of verse 3, Let my prayer rise like incense before you, the lifting up of my hands like the evening sacrifice, fast with poetic refrains and accompanied by an offering of incense. Collects, or prayers, expressed the meaning traditionally assigned to the service, to conclude the day with thanks to God for the day's graces and to ask his pardon for its failings. To this basic core, other chants and psalmody, and perhaps a lesson, may have been added. The services ended with the usual concluding intercessions and a prayer for protection throughout the coming night. In short, the service was not a monastic meditation, as in Western usage, but a popular devotional service, relatively invariable and hence familiar, comprising symbol, ceremony, song, and petitions for basic needs. Here, too, it is legitimate to suppose, to suppose that the constant chanting of the same basic refrains and the constantly repeated petitions for the same basic needs would have touched the hearts of the devout faithful, drawing them into the divine pedagogy of the Church's daily prayer with its message that the day and its night are God's and that even the natural rhythms of creation can be a symbol of his salvation ever present in Christ. Other services for particular needs complete the devotional fear of the medieval East. Constantinople, plagued by earthquakes, had developed a popular rogation service, the Liti, originally chanted during stational processions. It comprised the litany of petitions, the Trisagion and its prayer, and a prayer of blessing. This service, adaptable to all occasions and needs, found frequent use, as can be seen from its presence in medieval liturgical manuscripts. The picturesque rites of the burial of Jesus on Good Friday also belong to this period. This service becomes particularly popular in Byzantium in the 14th century. Devotion to the Passion was by no means just a medieval Western phenomenon. It was especially strong in Palestine and in the West Syrian area of influence in general. And recently uncovered medieval Coptic Via Crucis frescoes in the church of St. Macarius at Deir Abomacha in Egypt's Wadi An-Natrun Desert, witness to it in the Egyptian desert as well. All, however, was not mystagogy and anagogy, symbol and grace in medieval Eastern liturgical life. Canonical literature testifies to widespread abuses in liturgical practice and superstitions in popular piety. Around 1400, the monk Joseph Brienios accuses the clergy and monks of every possible degradation, including not even knowing how to cross themselves, and of profaning the holy mysteries. Superstition, rife in Byzantine society, also affected the clergy. The patriarchal registers record numerous cases of clerical convictions for magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. Worse are the cases of liturgical crimes, 
simoniacal administration of the sacraments, especially the blessing of uncanonical marriages, fighting in church, joking, irreverence, the theft of sacred objects, even obscenities during the very celebration of the services, and profanation of the sacramental gifts. Also to be noted is the abandonment of preaching and religious instruction. By the medieval period, the old system of Lenten and Paschal mystagogic catechesis had died out completely, and preaching, when not simply omitted, was limited to reading from a homiliary. But even for the devout, not given to such abuses, the decline in frequent communion, begun in the fourth century, had become tradition. As late as the writings of the Byzantine canonist Theodore Balsamon, who died sometime after 1195, daily communion is still envisaged for those who are worthy and prepared. And in Middle Byzantine monasticism, celebration of the liturgy daily or several times a week was not uncommon, and daily communion was the ideal. Even when there was no liturgy, communion was available from the pre-sanctified gifts, but monastic rules from the 12th to the 14th centuries reveal the growth of a more restrictive policy. Monks may communicate once a week or less frequently, every two weeks, monthly, every other month, or only three or four times a year, depending on the judgment of superiors. By the 15th century, one still finds instances of daily communion, but they are noted exceptions, even in monastic life. So by the late Middle Ages, the faithful at the Divine Liturgy are reduced to the status of onlookers, and communion has become a rare and occasional act of personal devotion rather than the common sharing of the commonly offered gifts. Under such conditions, the Eucharist could no longer sustain its former raison d'etre as a rite of communion. The void is partly filled by the traditional symbolism of the presence of the saving works of Christ in the ritual itself. But this was never meant to be independent of participation in the communion of the sacred gifts, without which the liturgy becomes at best a symbolic reality to be contemplated, or at worst, a sterile ritualism. Little wonder then that the Hesychist renewal, centered in smaller skeets rather than in the great Cenobitic monastic communities, with their regimented discipline and splendidly formalized services, was not ritualist in orientation. The well-known antithesis in late 15th century Muscovy between the hesychasm of the Transvolgan followers of St. Neil Sorsky and the triumphalistic urban monasticism of his rival, St. Joseph Olakalamsky, is paradigmatic of this tension between interior prayer and empty ritualism. In the late Middle Ages, the need was for interior renewal rather than greater emphasis on ritual prayer and on Mount Athos, and later throughout the Slavic Orthodox world, it was the Hesychists and Starci who responded to this need with a monastic lifestyle oriented more toward the prayer of the heart. The uninterrupted continuation of this type of monastic life in Skitis, Armenia, northern Mesopotamia, and in the mountains of Lebanon and Syria, is further evidence that one cannot see Byzantine or Oriental Orthodox piety as exclusively high church liturgical in character. From the outset, the most authentic sources of the Christian East have always maintained that the true liturgy is within. What Hesychasm did was give new life to this original vision. During the Hesychist revival, 
It was the genius of St. Nicholas Cavasilas to bring later Eastern liturgical theology back to this interior center, away from the arbitrary forays into extrinsicism and allegorism seen in the 11th century Protheria and in the 12th century liturgical commentary of Pseudo-Sophronius. For Kawasilas's interpretation is in no way extrinsic to the structure and meaning of the rites, nor is his contemplation a substitute for sacramental participation, but only its prelude. Kawasilas says, the aim of the liturgy is the sanctification of the faithful, who through these mysteries receive the remission of their sins and the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. As a preparation for and contribution to this act, and this purpose, we have prayers, psalms, and readings from Holy Scripture, in short, all the sacred acts and forms which are said and done before and after the consecration of the elements. While it is true that God freely gives us all holy things, and that we bring him nothing, but that they are absolute graces, he does nevertheless necessarily require that we should be fit to receive and to preserve them, and he would not permit those who are not so disposed to be thus sanctified. The liturgy, therefore, is not just a rite nor a contemplation, but an actual entrance into the saving mysteries through the reception of the sanctified gifts, according to Kavasilas. Kavasilas was well aware of the practical demands of this spirituality. If the hidden mystery that is Christ is revealed in the Incarnation, it is visible only in deed, but Jesus' humanity is like ours except for sin. This is where Christology and liturgical spirituality intersect with Christian ethics. It is only in Christ's actions that one can perceive his divinity, and it is only through a Christian life that one can become a true icon, whereby the reality of divine life revealed in baptism shines through to the eyes of men and women. True worship, Kavasilas makes clear in the life of Christ, book four, is not our liturgical service, but its effects seen in our lives. He says, to offer him pure homage is an effect of the holy table. To live according to right reason and to tend towards virtue, that is to worship God. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to this episode of the OLTV Podcast. Every Thursday, we have these lectures, and every Monday, we have Jack's Corner, where I, your host, Tarzan Bonanno, sit down with our founder, Jack Figgle, and talk about the founding of the Orientale Lumen Foundation and the goal to bring together the Orthodox and Catholic churches. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing on Spotify or at our Locals page. The links for that are in the description below. Thank you, and God bless. Oh,